All right. So welcome to the Open Source Startup Podcast. We are thrilled today to have Ajay Kulkarni on with us, who's the co-founder and CEO of Timescale. If you haven't heard of it, it's an open source time series database who today raised from Tiger. It was a very exciting announcement, pulled in Year of the Tiger themes, there's also a Tiger theme embedded in Timescale. So welcome, Ajay. Thank you. Yeah, today's a big day for us. We announced a new round of financing, Timescale, we're a relational database for time series. So we'd like to say that we're not just a time series database, we're a time series database plus a relational database, a Postgres database all in one, which has kind of been a big part of our unique kind of draw and appeal with developers. Yeah, launched five years ago. Since then, we built a large community with 4 million monthly active databases, you know, companies like Cisco and Walmart, New York Stock Exchange, Bosch, Siemens, Samsung, who else? Disney, Warner, Marvel, Tesla, all timescale users, but also a lot of up and coming companies as well. IoT, crypto, Web3, IT ops, marketing tech, music tech, analytics, music analytics, a huge, huge use cases. And in fact, last two years, we've seen a lot of growth our community has grown 7x in the last two years. Revenue has grown 20x in the last two years as we crack the nut on how to monetize. And yeah, now it's 110 million that we raised today. We announced that today. We've raised over 180 million in total from Tiger, Benchmark, NEA, Redpoint, Icon, Two Sigma Ventures, and others. About 100 people, actually over 100 people, more than double the headcount this year, nearly triple the headcount this year. Fully remote, 20 plus countries, six continents are highly distributed. And maybe as a little segue into the open source discussion, we just did the math recently and we're actually monetizing maybe 2% of all timescale consumption. Like our community base is about 50x bigger than our customer base. And so I think that's part of the open source story, right? So the goal is to build a really big pie and then grab a slice of it. That's awesome. And of course, that speaks a lot of volume why the tiger is involved here. Um, yeah, oh, so oh yeah, Gear of the Tiger. Yeah, we raised, <laughs> yeah, Timescale Tigers raised, you know, 110 million from Tiger in the Year of the Tiger. And it's it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. It's all kind of aligned this way in a way that I think the marketing team had a lot of fun with their the emojis that we put together for this post. <laughs> yeah, I definitely can imagine. And so let's go way back. And how did Timescale DB even start? Is this like a research project? Because I definitely know your co-founder, he's professional. And so like, yes. where did the idea came from and, and talk about like when you actually decided it should become a company? Yeah, my co-founder, Mike Friedman, is a professor of computer science at Princeton. I've actually known him for 25 years, I think, at this point. We met first week of college at MIT. He's great. I've known him for a long time. One of my closest friends. And he's been my co-founder. It's been really great. And he's also really smart. <laughs> he's very smart. Smarter than me. This did not start off as a research project. I actually started off, we started off as an IoT company. We kind of saw, you know, I had spent the previous 10 years in mobile. I kind of saw IoT as like the next wave of computing after mobile. And we realized that IoT, the Internet of Things, would have a lot of data challenges. So we started off building a data analysis platform for IoT to help companies, IoT companies with their data challenges. Moderately successful, had paying customers and over 100,000 devices that we were tracking. But as a result, we're collecting all of this time series data. And we need to place a store it. And we actually use some of the existing time series databases. And the experience just, just didn't work for us. It was really subpar. And it was really painful, actually. And so we decided that to kind of build our own, just for our own needs. We built our own on top of Postgres because we just love Postgres. And then classic story of you kind of solve your own problem. And then other people say, hey, like, I have that same problem. And we very quickly realized that this database we built was kind of solving a bigger problem than the IoT business. Relaunched Timescale early 2017. And then realized that we actually ended up building the right product at the right time, kind of sitting at the confluence of time series, Postgres, and SQL. 
And thanks to those three tailwinds, we've seen just really great growth, kind of classic hockey stick-like growth in the past five years. So what problems were you running into that kind of led you to build your own database? Like, was it scale problems, speed? What were kind of the initial pain points that led you there? I mean, all of the above. And I think the database world is so fascinating. There's been so much innovation probably since the early 70s from the first maybe system R paper or whatever. You know, I think you had the 70s and 80s where the rise of kind of classic relational databases like system R and Oracle and SQL Server. And then you get the open source variants like Postgres and MySQL. And I think one thing that happened in the in the 2000s, you know, is that you had the rise of NoSQL and non-relational databases, where you essentially had the rise of way more data than people were used to, in large part due to the internet. And in fact, the first companies, I think, who built non-relational systems were the first internet companies were like Google and Amazon. And I think what happened was that all of a sudden, NoSQL became fashionable and people thought that, hey, relational databases couldn't scale. SQL, for some reason, didn't work. And people kind of... I think threw out the baby with the bathwater and essentially just tried to rebuild things from scratch. And we entered that world, you know, when we we're building IoT company, it was other developers. And we entered that world saying, hey, like, we actually like SQL. We actually like the relational database model. It's incredibly versatile. It's incredibly powerful. SQL, SQL is a language. And yes, SQL is not ideal, but the power of languages is the interoperability. You know, I often compare SQL to English. Like English is not a great language. It's very, in some ways, an inelegant language. But because a lot of people speak English, it's a good language to learn. And SQL is similar where, yeah, you can build essentially the technical equivalent of Esperanto, like a well-designed language. But if no one speaks it, what's the point? And the advantage of SQL is that like, not only do people speak it, but tools speak it and technology speak it. Anyway, we enter this world and there are a lot of challenges that go down the list. But the high level thing is that people thought the only way to solve this scale of performance problem was by building a non-relational system. And we among other people around the same time, Cockers, DBs, another company that came out around the same time. And other companies as well, Google Spanner, you know, Google came to the same conclusion. Google was one of the first companies who developed a NoSQL database, came to the same conclusion and said, hey, like you can actually scale SQL in a relational data model. And so we did that for time series first, just because we needed it. And then when we kind of realized that other people had the same problem, we launched the company around it. It's a pretty big decision to basically just abandon your IoT company, right? And, and jump on this. What is the traction you really got to see? And did you start open source from the get-go because it's non-core to your business? I guess to talk about like what happened. Yeah, I mean, the first decision we made was we just built it. We didn't even think about open source or not. Like I think being a good founder in general, open source or not, I think a big part of it is being a good listener and kind of listening to signals. And I think listening, it's like, yeah, like often like people will say, oh, like, hey, do, I'll ask, it's like, hey, do people like, people need this problem. People will say, oh, they like it. But it's like, you have to listen. And if no one jumps out of their seat when you present what you're doing, then you're not really solving a problem. And I think we've been very good at listening at timescale. And we kind of listened to people as they, as we kind of described our database. I mean, you can just tell. It's kind of palatable. Like, wait a minute, there's something big here. And they're leading indicators versus lagging indicators. And I don't know. I think it's just being a good listener. And so I think we just got such a palatable signal when we first started talking about this database that we just realized, wow, there's something here. We have to go all in on it. And of course, also as a founder, you have to make bets and you have to be right with your bets. And I think we were right with this bet. But when we decided to go all in on the database, going open source was a no-brainer because we just said, look, like we wouldn't use a database that wasn't open source. Like we just wouldn't even consider it. And so we were like, obviously it has to be open source. And even the Postgres thing, I mean, now we know that Postgres is resurging. It's the one of the fastest growing, I think it's actually the fastest growing database the past five years. But at the time we picked Postgres because we liked it. When you have really good, I think, founder market fit or team market fit, 
in our case, you make these decisions that feel intuitive to you that end up being the right decision. So I want to double click on this thing that you just said around open source being a no-brainer because there are a bunch of reasons and benefits to having an open source component to your business, but specifically for the type of business you were trying to build, why was it such a no-brainer? We picked open source because we put ourselves in the shoes of our audience of developers. And we knew that if a database wasn't open source, we wouldn't even consider trying it. So it was kind of a no-brainer for us. But if you unpack that, why was that a no-brainer for us? I think open source has a lot of advantages as a consumer. You know, and I think the main one is that there's a community using this technology. There's a community supporting this technology. And yes, you know, some projects are more community-centric, some more company-centric. Mongo's example says more company-centric. We're more company-centric as a project. But at the end of the day, with an open-source project like Timescale, you have tens of thousands of companies who are using it, which means that if you need help, if you need support, there's a community that can help you. And you can see that in our Slack channel, eight or 10,000 person Slack channel. If you need help, you can just jump in and we have our engineers there, our CTO there, I'm there kind of helping out. But we also have people in the community who don't work at Timescale who help out. I think that's one of the advantages of open source, this idea of being part of a large community and working on not just a uh, technology, but something that's becoming a standard. And so obviously you started with your own needs. I'm reading your very first post from Timescale DB, right? An announcement, very first time. It talks about your own need, right? We need flexibility and we need performance, right? And so we cancel both. This is really interesting because there's so many debates about what is the right database is, even when it comes to time series specifically, right? And everyone has the very strong religious view of, I think time series database should be able to do X, right? And believe time series database should be able to do Y. And so often to see all your customers chooses you, what was hardest sort of challenges to overcome when you're saying that, hey, I found an approach and I can have both performance and scalability, flexibility. Did you try to engage with some discussions and benchmarks and proving this is my point and I can do all? Or do you just ignore all voices and just keep building and just use because you're your own customer and, and just work with people that chooses you? I was just curious, how do you navigate this database religious war? Often comes everywhere. There are a few questions in there. I think number one, we're not very religious about things. I think we're very practical. And I think often developers get in these religious wars because they often only see the world from their perspective. And they say, hey, like I needed X, so database needs to do X. And it's like, well, some other people may not need X, but they might need Y. And that's okay. Maybe you don't need, maybe you don't need to use this technology, but someone else will. So I think, number one, we're a big fan of like, hey, like this is not the best database for everyone. Some companies try to do that, try to be like the best database for everyone. And I think that's very disingenuous because you can't be the best database for everyone, right? But it's kind of like in our first post, that post you're looking at right now, we even talk about the scenarios where you may not want to use timescale. Now, some of those were due to limitations that we've overcome over time. So I think number one is like, just be practical and realize that like there are a lot of databases out there because there are a lot of different needs out there. And I think that's great. I think your second question is the challenges. I think the biggest challenge is that the thing we did and that we're doing, which is build a really scalable performant time series database, or really almost like an analytical database on top of Postgres, it's quite heretical. And it kind of challenges people's core assumptions. And people from the beginning would say, hey, okay, that's great, but you're gonna have a huge storage per footprint. You can't build compression as good as a columnar database. And then we would say, well, it's not impossible, it's just hard. And then a couple of years later, we did it. 
we launched columnar compression oriented database with best in class algorithms. Other times people would say, hey, like it'll work for a single node, but you won't be able to scale out. Won't be able to scale out Postgres, it's gonna be impossible. And we would say the same thing, which is like, it's not impossible, it's just hard. And then a couple of years later, we did it. Two years ago, we launched a timescale DB multi-node where you can scale out across multiple machines to petabyte scale. And we made it free. And I think that's been the biggest challenging thing is that is having to kind of overcome some of these, these reactions people have to the statement that they might seem as heretical. But our answer is always like, hey, just try it. If you don't believe me, just try it, you know, and then see how it is. And most people, when they try it, they're like, oh, wow, it works. <laughs> you know, it works better than I thought. And over time, we've been able to really like disprove a lot of our haters. And I actually have a list of folks who started off as haters and they're now friends of the company. They actually like, they really talk us up in the community. It's really great. And we do that by just honestly listening, but saying, hey, like, give us a shot. And a lot of these things that seem impossible, like you'll, you'll see that like, when you have a really good team and we have a great team, a lot of these things that they're just hard, but if you focus on them with great team of, you know, of engineers, you can solve them. So I wanted to ask, what were the initial goals when you launched Timescale DB? Because it's at the highest level, almost always traction, but what did that actually look like? Were you looking for specific types of users to use Timescale DB in a certain way? And how did you know it was working early on? Like, what were those kind of metrics or dashboards that you were looking at to see that kind of signal that things were going as you wanted? Your metrics, I think, change over time. I think in the beginning, we were just looking at whether people cared about us, you know, they talked about us. And very quickly, we found that, like, you're on the front page of Hacker News, people talk about us on Twitter, we go to conferences, people walk up to us, they'd be like, oh, wow, I've been tracking you and your technology is really great. I mean, I think that's in the beginning. Now we track more concrete metrics like consumption and revenue and number of customers and users and other things. But so those metrics change over time. But you know, like in terms of the audience, that's also changed over time. Like in the beginning, we started off in IoT. In the beginning, we thought we were just building a better database for IoT. That's where we started. And as soon as we launched, the reaction, the response was way bigger than we expected, than even we were hoping for. And that's when we realized, oh, this is bigger than IoT. There's this thing going on with time series and Postgres and SQL. And we happen to be at the confluence of these three trends kind of uniquely positioned to like build like the right thing at the right time. But then we thought, hey, this is a thing that's maybe a time series thing around not just IoT, but maybe also finance or DevOps or kind of classic time series use cases. But then in the past couple of years, as our business has grown and grown and grown, we've seen so many different use cases that we didn't expect. You know, we have folks using us for music analytics, Web3 and crypto is a huge new area that is quickly become one of our pillars of uses. You know, we didn't foresee that in 2017, right? We have folks using us for ad tech, marketing tech, healthcare and education company. Is back to my earlier point, like as a founder, I think you have to be a really good listener. Yes, you need a vision of the future of the world, but you don't build that vision in a vacuum, right? I think you have to build it by interacting with developers or with the market, with your audience, right? And I think we listened and over time, we realized that this wasn't just a database for IoT. It wasn't just a time series database, but this is actually just a better database. I had companies who say to me that like customers say to me, like, you keep talking about how you're a better time series database, but I actually think of you as a better Postgres because we're running everything on you. We're not just the time series stuff, but everything. Like you're our main database. You know, we have small companies spending a lot of money with us because we're their main database. And I think that's a big, huge insight for us over the time is we realize that like, look, this problem we're solving is way bigger than we thought. I think it's way bigger than other people realize. And we got there by listening to our customers. And, and if you look at our blog post we put out today around the new fundraise, it actually talks about this, how it's not just about building a better, you know, Postgres for time series, but how our audience and you know, our customers look at us as a 
better Postgres for IoT, better Postgres for Web3, a better Postgres for analytics, better Postgres for observability, better Postgres for events, just a better Postgres. And I think that's a fascinating part of this journey is to uncover the larger and larger market, you know, as we kind of listen to our audience. So, so one thing that really amazes me, you know, after reading your post is the amount of progress you can actually make every single month in 2017. Like there's like a major feature release on every month. And it doesn't look like small changes. Actually looks like, hey, we're supporting upsurge, We're supporting Windows. It's like every single month there's something going on that seems pretty major. And you have the momentum moving forward. In my mind, looking at this, I was like, okay, part of the growth seems like you guys are chugging so many things out there. How do you do it? I guess is the question because it was an IoT company means not everybody in that company is building databases before, right? And obviously you're dealing with Postgres, which is like a 20-year-old code base that isn't something that you can just pick up. Did you have to reshuffle the whole team? Or maybe, I don't know, this is all the stars aligned. Everybody can just learn and just go forward fast. What was it like at that period of time that made you be able to move fast? God, I have so many thoughts. My first thought is, when it comes to like entrepreneurship startups, I think who you build the company with matters more than what you're building. And I think from the beginning, we recruited just an amazing team for first the IoT company and with Timescale. And that same team, that same team stayed through the transition and is still with the company like five or six years later. I mean, we have people who've been with us for eight years, right? And I think it's, it's a testament to the quality of people that we recruited and got on board at the beginning and how I think we've just been able to work, work so well together. And the team today, I mean, we're over 100 people and everyone is just great. So again, I think who you work with is much more important than I think what you do. I think it's a big believer in that. So one of our principles, this came from uh, actually our VP of marketing. One of our principles is always be launching. Always be launching. It's just, this has created a culture um, and a brand of constant innovation. Constant innovation, constantly solving problems and launching cool new things. And so the question becomes like, how do you always launch? Like, we don't want to launch new database features every week, right? Obviously, you know, and so it's the question that became, because you don't want to sacrifice reliability. So the question then became like, how do we always launch? And then how do we, especially with the database, move fast without breaking things? And there are a variety of ways to do it. I mean, I think we have multiple engineering teams. I think last count, we had maybe 15 different engineering teams at Timescale, and they all have different cadences. Some are much faster than others. Some are slower than others. As you can imagine, you know, maybe cloud has a much faster cadence than, say, database, right? That's number one. And I think number two is you often think about like, hey, even on the database side, how do we launch new things in a way that encourages experimentation but doesn't sacrifice reliability? And we actually, you know, take advantage of uh, feature in Postgres. We can create schemas. We created like a experimental schema that we put new functions into. And so we can get them out in the wild, get people using it. But because we're in this schema, we're essentially saying, hey, like, these aren't ready for mission-critical use yet. Not because they're not reliable, because the APIs might change, right? But you can use them and get us feedback, and then things migrate from, they might kind of essentially graduate from the experimental schema to the main schema. So there are a variety of ways, but it really comes down to a culture of, like, always be launching and move fast without breaking things. And I think that's really important. Like, I think in this world, like if you're a developer choosing a database, you aren't just picking something today. You're kind of making a bet on a horse, right? You want to bet that this thing will scale and get better faster than your needs, right? And I think we've kind of taken that to heart. And one of our goals is to scale faster than our customer needs and to keep launching things that obviously, you know, you want to smooth rough edges, but you also want to launch the features that people didn't expect and kind of just delight them. And I think that's been a big part of it. But again, it also comes down to people, you know, because I think if you don't have the right people, you can't do these things. So, yeah. That's awesome. 
We talk a lot with founders on this podcast about their monetization strategy and at what point they started thinking about what product to build and what to charge and who to charge. So at what point in the journey did you start thinking about that? Or was it something that was already kind of a preconceived strategy even before TimescaleDB was launched? Yeah, our business model changed over time. <laughs> you know, well, in the beginning, the first couple of years, you know, you're focused on building the product, building community, classic open source. You know, you build the community first, and, and then you think about the business model. Initially, we thought our business model would be, you know, I think traditionally open source the business model has been support plus open core, and the idea was, of course, support is where you start, but eventually, you have enterprise features, and you kind of the classic examples are you put, oh, maybe you put security or auth or something in an enterprise tier, and you kind of charge for that. And we thought we'd be going down that path, but it's really early. 2020 when we realized that the future was cloud and the future of software delivery and even database delivery, database consumption was in the cloud and through cloud services, managed services. And if you think about it, it makes sense why. Developers, you want to focus on your application. You want to focus on your IoT, your crypto, your marketing tech, whatever your application is. You want to focus on that. You don't want to think about like maintaining a database. You want someone else to do that, right? Same thing with SaaS, right? With SaaS tools, you're going to use Gmail because you don't want to run your own Outlook Exchange server. <laughs> That's crazy. seems crazy now. And so we kind of saw that and we went all in on cloud. We realized cloud is the future. And as a, as a company, we realized that we had a focus and we went all in on cloud, made the bold move. And I think we're the only companies we've really done this. We made the bold move of making all of our software free, all of enterprise features free and just monetizing via a cloud service. And that's really when, you know, talk about the last, last two years, talk about our revenue kind of growing 20x is because of that decision. And our community has also grown 7x the past two years. And it's that same decision because as soon as we made all of our features free, that means that like if you need to run timescale on-prem, either because you're price sensitive or because you're too big, like maybe you're like the New York Stock Exchange, so you, you know, obviously have your own private data centers, or maybe your needs are exotic or they're kind of unique where you need to run on a vehicle or you need to run in a factory you need to run on-prem, but on-prem like, you know, at a site, time scales for free. And that way we built this community where, yes, business is growing very quickly and the company's growing very quickly, but the community is growing just as fast and it's including people who may not be able to use a cloud service. And I think I think that's that's been the huge realization for us. Now, that may not be the right answer for everybody. You know, I think I'm a big believer. Again, I'm not, I don't believe in religion. I believe in being practical. And I think I know other database companies that have built really great, successful on-prem businesses at the, around the same time we built this cloud. So it really depends on your market. But for us, it's been cloud. I'm a big believer in cloud. But in general, I'm a big believer in making big bets and kind of narrowing the focus on what, what you're doing. And that's what we did when we unlocked our business model. Do you think there's any trade-offs? Because obviously when you make everything free in the long run, a lot of people will start to ask questions like, why would I pay timescale to use the databases? And, and there's also like the question of like, maybe I can host it myself in a cloud and I can just run, it's like people running their own Kafka a lot these days. So I can just run my own timescale rather than paying you. Do you have a boundary that you draw that, hey, even though everything is free, but maybe at some point we could add something add-ons or maybe other products? Or do you think that adoption and getting widely adopted is actually matters a whole lot more here? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think people love asking this question about open source companies, but they forget that every company needs to answer this question, which is like, how do you get people to pay you? Every company has this problem. A lot of companies make things and it's like, how do you get people to pay you? Well, it's, it's hard. You have to build something that people want to pay you for. In open source, that might be deploying it on-prem, but it might be running it in the cloud. We knew and we kind of saw some early indicators that 
enough people would want to pay us to run TimeScale on the cloud. And TimeScale on the cloud, by the way, you know, also has some features that you know maybe you don't get on-prem. Different UIs, you know, better dashboards, decouple compute and storage. You kind of can elastically scale storage and you kind of auto-scale it. You know, working on some more cloud-native storage that'll come out this year. Things that you can't really do in an on-prem environment because there's too many variables. I think for us, it's yeah, like you have to build some people want to pay money for. We kind of drew the boundary at the managed service. But then the wrinkle is how do you do that in an open source world? And I think that's where we really, I think, thread the needle in a very unique way, which is through licensing, where Timescale is open source core, and then it has advanced features that are under a open source-like, but it's really source available license called the Timescale license. And the Timescale license prevents other companies from offering these features in the cloud as a SaaS service. I mean, you can build your own products on top, but you can't run a DBAS that offers these features. I mean, it's this classic open core, but the main difference is that the proprietary stuff is free and is source available and you can find it on GitHub and you can actually make changes yourself, right? To repair and all that, all that good stuff. By being thoughtful and perhaps a little innovative with licensing, we've been able to essentially give developers what they need, a free database with open source at its core, but also really create this boundary where we can build a cloud service while kind of drawing that line and prevent other people from essentially taking advantage of our R&D and hard work. It's really smart. And we've talked to a lot of founders who've been really thoughtful and innovative around how they thought about licensing. How did you even come to that conclusion? Like where where did you get advice from? What companies' licensing models did you draw inspiration from? Or just like, what was your process? I think we're really good students of the art. And I think myself and my co-founder, I think what we did is we kind of realized there's this problem in open source in general, which is how do open source companies in the cloud era built to self-sustaining businesses when some of these hyperscaler companies have shown as a track record of just strip mining technology and just offering it without giving back to the core project. Now, the problem's gotten better over the past few years, but I think that's it's a real concern. And we looked at a few different options. We looked at AGPL as an alternative, but we actually, others as well, thought the GPL was almost too viral. It was almost too, It's yes, it's is technically open source, but it's in some ways, it's almost more restrictive than the timescale license. Look at some other approaches that relicensed, and, and we don't like relicensing because it's kind of changing the terms a little bit, and we've never relicensed. We've never relicensed any, any of our source code. We just looked at the problem with fresh eyes, looked at what some other people were doing, and we decided that this model was just the right approach to create a new license that preserved 99% of what would make an open source license, but also allow us to give everything for free and I'm not saying this is the best approach for everybody. I know other folks who've built businesses with pure open source. Some businesses have built without any open source. I think Snowflake is an example of the latter. None of, the, none of that, their core technology is open source. They've built a great cloud infra company, data infra company. But I think for us, it's, it's about being practical, looking at the problem and trying to figure out how do we serve our developers while still building a self-sustaining business and also improving that over time. Like the first version of the Timescale license had paid features. But then in 2020, we realized that, look, if we're going all in on the cloud, we can make these features free. And that's when we decided to make everything free. And we also had users who said, hey, like, I would love to be able to make changes to my own source code, to the source code that I'm using for my own needs, essentially the right to repair. And we agreed that the right to repair was a good right to have. So we added that to timescale. So it's the timescale license. So again, I think it's about listening to your audience, thinking about problems kind of from the ground up, not trying to pattern match, not trying to be religious. And I feel like when you actually just stare at the problem long enough, the solution kind of becomes obvious. 
So I want to talk more about the community and maybe evangelism side. Because every company and almost every space has done this differently. It seems like Timescale, I saw it has like a Timescale hero program where you're actually empowering people, almost like an MVP type of thing. Talk about like how did you evolve your community engagement over time? Because initially, I'm sure 2017 is basically all of you (laughs) going out to conferences. I saw Mike speaking at Postgres Conf, right? Talking about the internals and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Did you hire evangelism, you know, on year one? And did you start doing more programs like the Heroes or try different things and found what was most effective? Just, yeah, just talk more about like that progression. Yeah, I mean, I think community needs to be a core part of your DNA from the beginning. And I think in the beginning, I think especially for open source companies, the founders are the core evangelists. Like in the beginning, I think Mike and I gave probably like 20, 30 talks in the first year. Everywhere we could, we talk about timescale and evangelize. But I think community building, I think, is more than evangelizing. I think community building is actually about being helpful. And I think from the beginning, one of our ethos has been help first. Is this idea that, like, I'm not here to sell you, I'm here to help you. If I think timescale isn't the best solution for you, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say, hey, actually, based on what you're saying, and we do this all the time, based on what you're saying, maybe you shouldn't be considering timescale because I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z. And what we found is that that help first ethos, it really resonates because people will be like, oh, wow, you're actually not trying to fool me. You're actually trying to help me. And it builds trust. And I've often found that more often than not, when you tell somebody, hey, we're not the best solution for this workload, they come back to you six months later, a year later with a better workload that's more appropriate. And then they become a happy user and a customer. So I think when it comes to community, I think number one, at least the way we think about it is help first. You know, we're not trying to sell first, not trying to market first, help first. And if helping you means telling you about time skill, we'll do that. Helping you means telling you about Postgres, we'll do that. If helping you means talking to you about open source business models, we'll do that. If helping you means just like answering other questions, we will do that. I think the first evangelists are the founders. And then I think from the beginning, it's we try to create avenues where we could be helpful. You know, we gave a lot of talks, created a Slack channel in the very beginning, a community Slack channel where we just gave free support. Now, without an SLA, right? I mean, you can pay for an SLA if you want, but we'll be helpful, you know, and answer questions. We recently launched a new forums because some people, you know, they prefer the forum format than the Slack format, which is great. Even on Twitter, we'll be super active. And I don't know, man. I, I think when it comes to company building, I always believe in planting more seeds than you're harvesting. I think there's some companies out there, some database companies, in particular, who have, who've been in harvest mode for years now. And, and you can see they're trying to extract more and more money from their customer base. Our attitude, especially my philosophy, has been always plant more seeds, pay it forward, because I think that's how you grow the business. And I think you grow the business by creating a community and by creating a really big pie. Whatever small slice of the pie that you have ends up becoming a big slice because the whole pie is big. I've also found that like, I like that approach is, is this more fun? Like it's, it's more fun. It incorporates more people. You involve more people. You know, you focus more on creating and planting than you are about you know, harvesting, right? Or reaping, if you know what I mean. So that's how we think about community. And, and, and one, of our, one of my goals is to kind of maintain this philosophy for years and years to come. I love that. The help first, Ethan. <laughs> so since today is a pretty big day announcement-wise for your team, I think it's a really good kind of point to say, looking back on, say, like since 2017, what were some of the most surprising things that have happened as a founder you've had to kind of navigate and you think that other founders would really appreciate kind of getting your perspective on if they're earlier in their journey? I mean, anything that can happen will happen. That's been the surprising part. We've had our first investor, so first board member, he passed away 
about five, six years ago in the prime of his life. It's a total surprise. Didn't see that coming. We had one employee a couple of years later also pass away because of health issues. You have other things that happen that are unexpected, you know, good and bad. Some people think that as the company grows and becomes larger, that the problems go away, but they actually amplify, they, they magnify. And, you know, I think the key thing is that like, it's a long journey. It's a long ride. There are a lot of bumps. You know, part of the startup lifestyle is a bumpy lifestyle. You know, like I think, I think like, but I think maybe that's why founders get, people get drawn to it because it, it's a little bit of, you know, it kind of keeps you on your toes. So I, I don't know. I think the number one thing is that like, no matter what happens, you're going to get surprised. Things are going to happen, good and bad things. As long as you stay grounded, as long as you surround yourself with a great team. And I'm so thankful with the team we've built. And as long as you think long-term, because over the long term, all these bumps go away. You'll be fine. But it's not easy. But I feel like it was easy. We wouldn't be doing it. You know, I feel like this is easy. I feel like you wouldn't be doing it. I know a lot of good friends who who've started companies. They've left really easy, well-paying jobs. I'm sure, you know, you a lot of a lot of people like that as well. Life is short. You know, I think you should do something that you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about it, it's probably going to be a little bumpy. And that's just that's just the journey. The last question, you mentioned listening quite a few times and in your learnings, of course, there's is a very bumpy ride and we, we've definitely seen it for many founders, but listening is such a hard thing to teach because we all know we need to listen, but not many people exactly know what that means, right? And what have you internalized after this, you know, the big pivots and now you're growing this community? Would you, how do you advise founders to listen, especially in an open source world where there's so many voices and opinions? I think number one, if you're not a good listener, you probably won't realize that you need to become a better listener. So it's kind of this catch-22, right? My piece of advice, which is things the mentality we have at Timescale, is one of our company values, actually, is to be like a student, just to maintain the student mindset, a student for life, you know, in work and life, just constantly be looking to like learn how you can get better and improve. And I think listening is then becomes part of that is you kind of listen to people. And I think the second piece of advice is sometimes the answer is to shut up, is when someone is talking, let them talk and just listen. And, and people will tell you things when you just shut up. And I think sometimes we get so enamored with our own opinions. And, and I feel funny saying this. I'm talking a lot on this podcast, but, but I feel like we get so enamored with our own opinions. But I think sometimes it's like, look, it's not about you. It's about you just listening and, and shutting up. But I think it's something you build over time. I think it's, again, it, you know, being a student of how to be a good listener. I think there are different signals you look for. I think listening requires a little intellectual honesty as well, because I think sometimes people get fooled by themselves. They kind of believe their own hype, you know, so probably requires a little bit of humility. Being a good listener is something that will help you, not just as a founder, but as a friend, as a father, mother, partner, you know, parent, child, sibling, whatever your role is in life. I think listening is an incredible skill to have. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. I think our listeners will really enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Awesome.